Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, and my user handle on most social media platforms is at Ned 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 Ned. That's just my first name, four times. And I'm Caroline Sita, and this is probably the least prepared I've ever been for one of our podcast recordings. All right, well, let's get let's get lit. <laughs> the way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love, except when we don't do that, like right now. Um, we're doing something else. So first, I, we'd like to acknowledge the oliphant in the room. Oh, uh, oh groaner, get ready. Uh, which is that we announced our upcoming Lord of the Rings series, but here at Roll Calling... We believe that we never do anything unless it is worth taking a long time to do. Wow. I can't believe you didn't go with a wizard is never late or early. He only arrives precisely when he means to. Well, you'll hear in the future what a what a hardcore tree beard stan I am. So I my brain kind of goes right to right to him. Um, so we're doing that. We're um, we're going to arrive uh, exactly as we mean to, and that's going to be later than now. Uh, we are working hard on those episodes. We're getting some very exciting friends to talk with us, uh, some old friends and some new friends. And you can expect those episodes to appear in December. So sit tight. Until then, we are going to be on a little hiatus, which we wanted to announce. But uh, before we did that, I wanted to, you know, give you a little something to enjoy, a little mini-sode. And I had kind of a funny idea for that. So... Since we talk so often on here about Letterboxd, or I don't know, at least I do, um, the social media app where you log and rate the movies you watch, which is today, I think, going to sound like it is a sponsor of our program, but it's not. We receive. <laughs> but they're no welcome to Letterboxd. sponsor us if they'd like oh, to. Oh, absolutely. At Letterboxd. Yeah, we would love to. I will I will do a Letterboxd commercial every damn episode if you like. Uh, just, just hit me up. But yeah, uh, I talk about it a lot. I've started doing it really consistently about a year ago. Uh, logging and and writing little reviews of the um, of movies that I watched and I really like that so I love Letterbox Diary function and so we wanted to look back at the movies that we watched in 2022. It's not quite the end of the year yet, but we've got uh, ten months and ten days worth of movies uh, that we've been watching. So I sent Caroline a couple prompts, a couple questions uh, for us to answer out of the movies that we've watched this year, at least the ones that are logged on Letterboxd. Uh, and we are going to go through. How are you feeling about today's episode, Caroline? Well, I I love when you just come up with an idea for our show and then implement it. Like our, um, what did we end up calling our awards? The Roll Callies or something? Somebody gave them a name. Some, maybe one of our users. It was, was it the oh, Lorries? The yeah, Lorries. The Lorries, of course, of course. That was like one yeah. of my favorite episodes. You just sometimes have these great impulses and I'm always happy to follow them. I'm also I, curious to I appreciate that. I'm I'm curious to hear how you use Letterboxd if you have certain like philosophies you follow. So like I I when I started, I didn't pre-log anything I'd already seen. I was like I'm going to start as a blank slate, log Smaller. things as I watch them. But if I rewatch something that I have already logged on Letterboxd, I don't re-log it. Okay. I'm not like that. I journal every movie I watched. For instance, I watched The Fellowship of the Ring twice in 2022 already. And you can see my entry for it on February 21st of this year and another entry for it on 
October 15th of this year. And you may see a third one if I decide to watch it again <laughs> before our episode. Um, yeah, I definitely relogged that. I also don't, I haven't gone back and logged previously watched movies. Although sometimes I mark them as watched because I also make lists. Do you make any lists? Mm, only kind of as jokes. Uh-huh. Well, well, oh, no, that's, what do you that's mean? not true. Okay, I do my top films of the year. I have a list of my MCU rankings, but then I have... <laughs> oh, yeah, I have I, an MCU ranking inspired by your MCU ranking. I have a list called Movies Where the Central Trauma is that Chris Pratt's character was emotionally unable to say goodbye to a parent on their deathbed, which includes <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy and the Pixar movie Onward. <laughs> so I thought it was weird that that was the exact same scene in those movies. Oh, and then I have another one called... <laughs> Julianne Moore's Gloria Cinematic Universe, which is the movie Gloria Bell and the movie The Glorias. <laughs> I used Letterbox right. in quite a uh, comedic, strange. <laughs> I use Letterbox to sort out humor that is probably only funny to me, but it feels like an outlet for that. Yeah, that's that's totally fine. I have, you know, what I started doing. I mean, I've got a couple. I've got MCU ranked. I've got Bond ranked. Uh, I've got Coen Brothers films ranked. Um, but what I've started doing, I was working on a top 100 and I kept shifting it. And Emily suggested, she's like, why don't you just lock it in for like where you are right now? So I have a favorite movies when I was 18, which I remember. Oh, fun. And uh, my favorite movies, this is basically now, but I, I just locked my current list in place and I called it my favorite movies when I was 32. Sure. Which is how old I am now. But I'm now working on another secret list that may eventually be different enough to lock in place as my favorite movies when i was 36 or something yeah yeah that's a fun idea yeah i like i like doing it um so the lists are fun and so because of that okay tell me about your your letterboxed like uh profile like what's take me there what do we see there oh what's my your gosh. favorites just Can oh my that? favorites good call um what we're really discovering is how little thought i put into my letterbox versus i think you're beautifully curated uh <laughs> Attention to detail. It's just, I would call it chaotically curated in uh, manic spurts of energy. Mm. My profile, I'm now realizing, lists me as a film and TV critic, an AV Club contributor, even though I no longer work there, mm -hmm. and then my favorite descriptor on all social media platforms, expert grocery shopper. Nice. And Which I can attest to. I love a good grocery shop. My top four favorites are Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe movie, Independence Day, mm -hmm. the Will Smith movie, yep. uh, Pride and Prejudice, the Keira Knightley version, mm -hmm. and If Beale Street Could Talk, the Barry Jenkins film. What about you? You know, I've never seen Beale Street or Gentlemen Ooh. Prefer Blondes. I, well, obviously I love both of them. Would 10 mm -hmm. out of 10 recommend? My, my faves are Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise, Victoria, which is a German film from Ooh, I was 2015. picturing the young Victoria with Emily no, Blunt. That one but <laughs> didn't make such a dent. That didn't crack the top four, at least. Somewhere a little bit lower than four. Uh, and Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Oh. Those are my top four. And those are kind of those kind of represent like some big like pillars mm -hmm. of Victoria, for the only one that may be like less familiar there, is kind of a an edgy, very indie, very DIY, like sort of crimey drama but it's all genuinely shot in one take it's not even like styled like one take like 1917 it's like it is two hours and 15 minutes of unbroken take Jeez. kind of moving around berlin from 4 a.m to 6 15 a.m so that kind of like auteur like hard to do impressive mm -hmm. 
behind the scenes shit is fun to me. And then, you know, you got like Spider-Man, Thelma and Louise. Those are just like perfect movies. And movies I really associate with you. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. And then my recent activity is uh, 007 Tomorrow Never Dies, three stars. Werewolf by Night, three and a half stars. Return of the King, five stars. Two Towers, five stars. <laughs> I My most recent film is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. No stars yet because I, I also, I also use Letterboxd to share my like actual reviews, mm-hmm, yeah. published reviews. So I kind of wait till those are up to log them. Because unlike me, what I do for fun on Letterboxd, you also <laughs> do as a job. True. The, which might explain the slightly different ways that we use it. I do think my Black Panther review is publishing as we are podcasting right now. So maybe we'll really? do a real-time Letterboxd update. Ooh, as... a review. That could be fun. <laughs> and then I also watched Barbarian and the upcoming Noah Baumbach movie, White Noise. Cool. At the Chicago International Film Festival. Yeah, okay, fancy. So I'd like to jump us into some of the prompts uh, to take us back through our own 2022 Diaries, a little blast in the past. And the first thing I want to bring up is a memorable five-star movie. Shall I go first or would you like to? Why don't you go first? It's your 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 category idea. Sure. So um, the one I picked, and I this, this is going to be more, I think, like, indie obscure than any of the other things i'll say today um but the one i picked was a movie called the falconer uh which i watched on february 4th and was one of my first five star films of the year uh in fact it was my second one right after watching when harry met sally uh and this is a film that i saw at the santa fe film festival so i had a short film the last stand of bobby co which i got to take to the santa fe film festival it was kind of my first time going to like a you know medium fancy in-person film festival where you know, this experience there was like they give you a pass, a filmmaker pass, and are like four times a day. There are movies showing in two to four venues across town. You can just go into whichever ones you want. So that was basically like fucking paradise for me. I loved that. Uh, sometimes I saw movies. There was a couple of times I went into a movie theater and I was literally the only one in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Falconer, I feel like there was a handful of other people like a small handful, but it was this tiny, tiny film called The Jean Cocteau, which I think is actually owned by George R.R. R. Martin. And I saw this movie, The Falconer, which is an Omani film, potentially the first film from Oman that I've ever seen. I assume like pretty low budget, kind of like gorgeously shot little like indie film about young people. It's kind of about these two friends who live in a city in Oman, and they work as zookeepers at the city zoo, which is essentially like I don't know, there's, like, no administrative oversight, so, like, these two teenage zookeepers basically, like, run the show there, and it's this thing where they end up starting to, like, steal animals from the zoo they work at as it becomes this thing they have to, like, raise money in order to help one of the the kids, his sister, is married to sort of, like, an abusive guy, but because of the marriage contract, they have to, like, pay this massive dowry back to him in order to like, emancipate her from there. But the thing that's, like, I mean, besides being, like, in this beautiful, like, Omani countryside, there's, like, tons of animals in the film, and it's clear that, like, the filmmakers and the actors just have this total intimacy with animals and with nature, and there were just, like, there are shots where, like, you know, the star of the shot is, like, waiting to watch what this falcon is going to do, or, like, this snake And I just, like, gasped so many times through the movie. So it had this kind of, like, very, like, low-budget indie spirit, but also this, like, 
tremendous spectacle of just watching like the undirectable in animals. And that was a really cool thing. So that was my memorable five-star movie this year. Cool. I just looked it up and it looks like it is available to rent like on iTunes or wherever Amazon. So if people want to check it out, it is. Oh, awesome. It is out there. People can see it. Please go check it out. The Falconer 2021. Do you give a lot of five-star reviews, do you think? Um, It looks like I'm giving like one to two a month okay. as I scroll through. Out of, I'd say... I'd say roughly 5 to 10% of the time I give a five-star mm-hmm. review. So I was realizing, I, I hadn't been tracking this purposefully, but in looking mm-hmm. through my list, I was like, I actually very rarely give five-star To you, it's like, that's like perfect film only. Mm-hmm. And so this list is, this goes back to my weird way of logging. Like I rewatched mm-hmm. When Harry Met Sally this year, which is a five-star movie for me, but because I didn't re-log it, didn't officially show up for 2022 but of the Mm -hmm. movies that were sort of like first time letterbox logs for me i only have four five star Hmm. movies well i don't think there's any wrong way to do it but yeah what what are you thinking so my four five star reviews are roman holiday Uh with uh audrey hepburn the aforementioned pride and prejudice keir knightley version Mm -hmm. of course high school musical (laughs) Yeah, five stars. You know it. And then the one that I'm going to highlight here, which is Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, which came out this year. It's a full-length feature adaptation of these little quirky short YouTube videos that came out in the 2010s in which Jenny Slate voices this tiny little anthropomorphic shell named Marcel, who's just like a really positive, upbeat little guy with a really goofy voice. And I watched those shorts when they came out, and then A24 made this movie adaptation, and I went to see it thinking this will be a fun, quirky little, you know, film that I'm sure I'll enjoy, and truly found it to be one of the most poignant, beautiful, (laughs) life-affirming, tear-jerking, like, pieces of art. Like, right now, it's probably my number one favorite movie of the year. I saw it twice, cried both times, and I truly just love this movie so much it's so it's just the ultimate example of taking something that's very silly but then finding the really lovely poignant parts of it and the setup is that it's marcel and his aunt who are the only remaining people that live in this like house where they used to kind of live with a bunch of people that they knew and then those people go missing so there's this really like poignant element of these two people kind of trying to survive and thrive and a human moves into their house where they live and so he's the one that's sort of filming the like pseudo documentary about Mm -hmm. them the um i think i said aunt it's the grandma the grandma is voiced by the great isabella rosalini like giving an absolutely (laughs) incredible (laughs) genuinely no idea she was in that movie voice performance like probably should be nominated for an oscar if any i'm i'm worried i've hyped it up too much because maybe part of the reason i loved it was because i went in Mm -hmm. not expecting anything but i just think it's such a special good little film and i would encourage everyone to seek it out that's so cool i haven't i didn't watch that movie yet um but i'm loving that it's a five-star review which we know are rare yeah there's still time It, it still exists great thank you for that uh, maybe we'll trade off. Do you want to start us off with our next prompt, a memorable one-star movie? Sure. Well, similar to my five-star reviews, I actually realized I very rarely give 
one star reviews either. Same. Um, usually I'm in the two star range if it's something I don't like. If it's something I really don't like, I give it a half star. That somehow feels more fitting to me. I think the uh-huh. only movie I actually gave just one star to is Baywatch. <laughs> I also I gave two one star reviews this year. I won't I won't say who the other one is yet, but my one of them was Baywatch. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we're, I'm glad Zach Efron united us in our one star hatred. Man, fuck Baywatch. What a that terrible, what a toxic sucks film. Ass Truly on so many levels. A toxic film. The one I'll highlight here is the Judd Apatow movie The Bubble, which came out on Netflix. Hmm. Judd, I mean, here's what I wrote in my review. So I only gave it half a star, but I wrote yeah. extra half star off for squandering a pretty great premise. Because it's a it's a COVID movie. It's it's a it's like a meta movie where it's a group of actors filming a Jurassic Park style blockbuster sequel. But mm-hmm. as happened with the real Jurassic World Dominion, they're all in order to film it during the pandemic. All the actors are just quarantined together in this hotel, sort of in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I didn't know just, that was a true a true inspiration. I like that. Yeah, and it's such a fun idea. Like, I feel like there's so much promise there to be like all these personalities going crazy, just locked in together. And the movie is so long and so boring and so unfunny. <sighs> Oof. Deeply frustrating. So memorable for how annoyed I felt while watching it. My one star movie is going to be Deep Water. Does that ring any bell to you? Did you see was this that film? The ben Affleck. Ben Affleck and Ana and de Armas. No, that was one that was on and i guess theoretically still is on my list of things to watch but well just maybe didn't get around to it maybe you should here i'll, I'll read my review here because i i tend to, sometimes i write little like one to three sentence reviews sometimes i go a couple paragraphs i do not have a consistent way of doing that this on the shorter set i said the most insane film i've ever seen i exclaimed what the fuck 100 times aloud Wanted to leave the room where M was watching, but could not look away. I'm certain this movie was created by a consortium of space aliens. <laughs> and that is really true. I mean, it's like, it is an adaptation of a book from, I want to say, the 50s. And like, on its surface is kind of, I don't know, you're like, yeah, that sounds like a movie. There's kind of a like, a tense, erotic relationship between mm-hmm. this couple where she is allowed to, like... Because they don't want to get a divorce. Interesting, it's like the politics of the 50s have been like brought into 2022 without any sort of acknowledgement that like norms have changed. It's like they won't get a divorce because that would be like a shame. So she's allowed to like sleep around with whoever. But then there's this sort of ambiguous question of like whether he might be murdering the guys that she's sleeping with. It's a movie that like looks modern but feels sort of like incomprehensibly like like this is not how people behave or ever have behaved the like tonal anachronism of it does not work the central relationship i mean we don't know maybe ana de armas and ben affleck like really did have a relationship i feel like that's one of those ones that is sort Ooh, of plausibly it for publicity it's I, I try to take those like claims with a grain of salt but like at this point, I actually do believe as a fact, like, yes, celebrities cultivate fake relationships for mm-hmm. publicity. And this one feels like a serious candidate for that being true. Um, not only is she 34 and he 50, but like she's kind of like a like a 25-year-old looking 34-year-old. Mm-hmm. So the whole dynamic in the movie is extremely bizarre. Uh, 
I think that the situation, it's directed by this guy. Yeah, Adrian Lin, I think. Yes, Adrian Lin, if that's how it's pronounced, who did, you know, Flashdance, Indecent Proposal, Fatal Attraction. Basically, like, in the 80s and early 90s, he was, like, you know, the guy for this. But he's, like, yeah. But he's, like, he's 80 now. And I think that his, like, touch, either he just, like, phoned it in from a directing chair or his, like, touch is off or there was just, like, a bizarre team of creatives, like, pulled together for this. But, I, I, I like, the way the plot plays out is, like, so insane. This, like, crazy, like, Tracy Letts car chase that happens at the end of it is insane. Uh, the acting is, like, incredibly uneven. There's people, like... Lil Ray Howery, who I think is, like, really funny in Get Out, is just, like, kind of, like, stuck in there. And he was like, you know, do your funny, do your funny thing. It's it's truly, like, one of the most bizarre viewing experiences because it's not just, like, oh, here's a cleanly, like, low-budget, like, B-movie. It's this, like, strange view. And, and just, like, all the little details, these, like, like, weird parties that these – it all takes place at, like, a series of cocktail parties. People are playing, like, lawn games that don't exist. It really – I can't say more than, like, it feels like a bunch of space aliens said, like, we will do a human erotic thriller now. And, like, they just really missed the mark on it feeling human in any way. Um, But it is, as I mentioned, like, very strangely compelling. So I am not discouraging you from watching it. Yeah, I guess there is something about, or there can be something about a one-star movie that is a, almost more of a must-see than a two-star movie. Because mm-hmm. one star means there's something off in a way that could be compelling to watch. Although, don't apply that to the bubble. Just don't watch the bubble. <laughs> I know. I'm like, do I think that about Baywatch? I mean, Baywatch is interesting if you're like, would you like to see the most toxic comedy to come yeah, out of a certain generation it's of so comedies? so misjudged, misguided. Mm-hmm. Also yeah. wild that Ben Affleck, like what was Deepwater was what, like February or March? Yeah. Wild that that's how his year started and now he's freaking married to J-Lo. <laughs> Like anything can happen in a year, friends, you know, That's you right. never know where you'll be. That's right. You might be starting your year throwing the Anadarmus cut out in the out trash. coming out with your ex. Yeah. Then you end it married to J-Lo. And you too could be married to J-Lo by the end of the year. <laughs> so keep on keeping on, friends. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. The next prompt uh, was the most meh movie. And to be clear, I did not, we did not discuss these in depth. I did not give additional context. So we'll see how you took that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the most meh movie of the year was on March 7th when I saw Cyrano. Oh. A movie that I was going to say I've forgotten since then, but honestly, like, I feel as though I forgot it by the end of the day. Mm-hmm. A phrase I used in my letterbox review is, I feel that I enjoyed this movie as I watched it earlier today, and since that time, it has drifted out of my mind like a warm mist. Interesting. I think it was, like, purely inoffensive. It's got... I guess, good casting. I mean, Peter Dinklage is a good actor. That's like an interesting person to pair with Cyrano. That's a Joe Wright film, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. I, we, right. Right is right. We like right. You know, I, Joe yeah. Wright's good. Pride I, and Prejudice. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is fun. I mean, I've had an up and down relationship with Pride and Prejudice over the years. There was definitely times probably in like, you know, 2015 when I was like, that Pride and Prejudice movie, you know, it's all it's all style and it's all, 
you know, was it historically, you know, blah, 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 blah. But now I'm, I've swung back to thinking that it's like really great. Yeah, he did that Anna Karenina movie that I really mm-hmm. want to see. Atonement. As soon as I finish reading the 950 page book, <laughs> which is I've been doing for the entire year. I think that he is good. I think there are some interesting parts in this. I like this like floofy sleeve dance that happens. I just think that like the story of Cyrano at its heart is so interesting and fun and thrilling mm-hmm. and funny and beautiful. And I like would not apply like any of those words to this movie, except maybe beautiful. I guess I would describe it as a beautiful movie, but like not in a way that stirs the heart, just in mm-hmm. like a series of like nicely composed frames yeah. and like well-designed costumes. But I know. definitely liked it more than you, but yeah. it, it, it was tough. Like saying Peter Dinklage in Cyrano directed by Joe Wright is as if you just took, you went into my brain and took like my three favorite things and put <laughs> them all together and so it was hard that it didn't really live up to that. They make it a musical, which I think was yes. actually a mistake. Yes, I agree. I don't like that choice. I also think Peter Dinklage is like 10 to 15 years too old for the part. And it made me really bummed that they were not able to get this movie together earlier. Like, I think mm. that him being a little younger, a little closer in age to his love interest, mm-hmm. I think would have helped a lot that would have helped you root for them a little bit more Mm -hmm. you know because i think like the thing is you should be like your heart should be like leaping out of your chest to see cyrano and roxanne together Mm -hmm. and i do think that yeah that 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 problem of dinklage being i don't know what's what's he now probably 50 something yeah i think so and Haley Bennett, how old is she? Again, she's another person. She's an like Anadarmus she where she looks younger than she is, I think. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, so Dinklage looks like he's about fifty-three. And she Yeah, she's exactly she's exactly Anadarmus's age. She's thirty-four, <laughs> but she also looks like a twenty-five year old. Yeah. In any case, I wouldn't say that my heart was leaping out of my chest to see them together. No. I think for me, it did work a little better for me, though. It wasn't good. Like, it was frustrating that it was not what I, as good as I think it could be. Mm-hmm. But maybe this just comes down to our different definitions of meh, too. Like, there, I yeah. think there's something. There feels like there is more, there's potential there. There's like some, I don't know. And I, I could go on a Pride and prejudice journey with it. But, um, but at the moment, I'm definitely on a downswing of being like, you know, I just have no, dis- you know, you've got, yeah. you have no, dis- I, I remember... What do you think is the best song in the movie? Ma- oh, I the National, I, I love. Tell you a single song in it. Yeah, but do like you remember a musical number? I I feel like there's one musical the number that stands out. And- um, no. To be honest, I also watched this last year, so I don't okay. super recall. What was your fave? It's the number where the soldiers sing about like the letters they want to write home before they mm. go march off when they're in the cave. Yes, they're in the yeah. cave getting ready to go to war. And it is, to contextualize this, three literally unnamed characters who do not appear in any other scenes in the movie besides this song. One of them is Glenn Hansard of uh, of the Swell yes, season yes, in the yes. movie Once. And um, that song had like a lot of pathos to it. But I think when you're, I think, I couldn't remember if it was you, but I've had multiple conversations where people are like, hey, you know what song I did like in that movie it was the guards singing, the soldiers in the in the cave singing and i think when there is some consensus that the best song the best musical number in your musical is one with three unnamed characters like Mm -hmm. something is 
something is off there. You know, I don't think getting the national for this was like a good choice. And I don't think the script is very They it's made like, weird adaptation choices that yeah. I also didn't love. I just love Cyrano so much. I agree. Oh, it's just so hard. I just wanted this movie to be so good, you know? I agree. That that to me is kind of I think that we may have had different like, you know, star review level mm-hmm. like ultimate placings of it, but I think that we agree like the elements you had going on here should have been like a way better film. I'm just watching a little trailer autoplay on the IMDb page and there's a little pull quote that says Wright's best film and I'm like, no, you crazy. No, it's not. Not even Ugh, close. But it could have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that for me was meh. How did you take meh? So I guess thematically related to the bubble, I went with the Jurassic World Dominion, mm-hmm. the third installment of the Jurassic World trilogy, mm-hmm. which was not good. But I think what Mm-mm. what elevated to a level of meh movie for me was that it was this huge push to like bring back Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum and like this is supposed to be not only a capper to the Jurassic World trilogy but kind of the entire Jurassic Park saga and it was just kind of nothing like it was so forgettable. It's a Jurassic Park movie in which dinosaurs are the third most important thing after like human (sighs) clone dna and giant bugs which was so baffling to me that's terrible 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 decision and some of the editing in the final in the final sort of in the third act climax like i don't know i think a lot of productions really struggled with covid like i think we can't underestimate how much pandemic limitations just like impacted everything we've been watching recently Um, But with that movie in particular, like some of the messiest, just basic geography and editing, like here's a dramatic scene where one girl can barely climb up a ladder to avoid, you know, the dinosaur that's about to get her and everyone else is on the ground. Literally, we cut to the next scene. Everyone's just up where she is as if they have all climbed that same ladder with no, just like very, very basic filmmaking things that just fundamentally do not make sense. A sort of like run around final act that is is trying to have the energy, you know, of like the the raptors in the kitchen scene, like something really tense and intimate. But the cast is like 10 people and you just cannot have that level of intimacy <laughs> when it's, you know, all of our favorite, uh, our favorite Bryce Dallas Howard's and Chris Pratt's uh, memorable characters running around with the original <laughs> trio and their clone daughter and, you know. And some other just, friends and yeah. Just, just so forgettable. Although I will say they gave us uh, Jurassic Park cats at the press screening and that was fun. So in that sense, I guess it was a memorable film experience. Plus half a star because you got a free hat. Yeah, exactly. Their, their attempts to bribe us work. Does the hat say Dominion on it or does it just have like I the Jurassic Park I think it just logo? has the logo. Oh, that's cool. That's great. It'd be such a bummer if you had that, but then it said Dominion. Now I want to see if I can find it. I know the podcasters won't hear it, but I want to show you. We'll take a screenshot. This is Here it is. Now I'll just wear it for the rest of the record. It's a T-Rex, T-Rex against yellow circle. It's sort of classic Jurassic Park logo on the front. And then, in case that weren't enough, the Hardee's star <laughs> <laughs> on the back, which I'm assuming means that they somehow sponsored and or were a part of this. So I can both represent Jurassic Park and the fast food chain Hardee's. Great. Anyway, I'm glad you got a cool hat out of it. That's a movie I love dinosaurs yeah and uh and i remember posting when that trailer dropped i think i said like i won't i wouldn't continue supporting this like deeply degraded franchise if anyone else was making dinosaur content but no one is so here i am 
But you know, I did not watch that film and it was because of your review. I read your review and it just made me so. I was like, I do not want to watch a movie about locusts. That's not what I want. Yeah. So many locusts. They really were just like what the people want. Not Blue the Raptor, the strong female character we've come to know and love. Just fields and fields of locusts. See, I would. I. I don't even care for Blue. You don't care don't for like Blue, that. the raptor. No, remember when they showed her, us to her as a baby? Yep. And we all were like, we love babies. Mm, kinda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I don't care for Blue because Blue to me is just tied in with Owen, and I just hate Owen. Yeah. Fuck Owen. Bad. Anyway. Character. Yep. Well, uh, I'm not going to see that one. However, maybe you could tell me something I should see, or maybe I have seen, because the next prompt I gave is a movie people are sleeping on. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple here, just because I figured it was good to to shout out a few. Yes, I, I did the same. Great. Um. Okay. <laughs> one that definitely needs shouting out. So obscure, no one has ever heard of this franchise. It's made zero mm-hmm. money. Okay. Um, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to continue to brand myself as the world's mo- foremost Sonic the Hedgehog uh, film franchise fan. I love the movie so much. <laughs> Truly, I love them. I-, I think 2 is probably a little less good than 1, but like they're so earnest and sweet, and they're just about James Marsden and his beautiful wife like adopting Sonic and being his parents, and mm-hmm. then Sonic gets to have friends in the second one. Cute. And I just love it. I cry at both of them. <laughs> well, so, I have not seen them. I mean, you're right. The world is not. I'm sure that the box office on there, because they are kids' movies that are successful. Like, I'm sure the box office is good. But yeah, I would not say that Sonic has permeated our generation or our community in such a strong way. And in fact, I've not seen either one. I mean, you're missing out on. I can't remember the exact. I. I feel like there is definitely a random Sonic needs to dance to a Bruno Mars scene at a bar. Like a dive mm-hmm. bar, you know, like a dance that sounds battle. About right. I don't know. I just find them very charming. I think that they are um, American Paddington. Oh, wow. In a way that I actually mean less as a compliment to Sonic and more as an insult to America. <laughs> you don't just mean they're Paddington that was made in America. You mean they are Paddington put through the machine of American cultural values. I mean, in the way, yeah, in the way that America sucks, but would be representing a charming british film series is how i feel about sonic the hedgehog Sure, great i'm interested um anyway that was our 10 minutes sonic the hedgehog segment no that was that was five at most (laughs) other quick things i will shout out Mm -hmm. there's a really cool super quiet um sci-fi movie called after yang with colin farrell which Mm. is sort of a very humanistic drama about this world where you can have sort of android um, companions for your family. In this case, subbing in as like an older brother figure. Mm-hmm. And the character's named Yang and he starts malfunctioning. So the movie is just kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's mainly just a family drama about like how, them reckoning with how, what, with what Yang's place was in their family and, you know, man and machine and, and connections like that. It's just really cool yeah. and unique and very gentle, not like explosive action sci-fi. Yeah. Just, Sounds like like a like a dementia drama mixed with like Westworld, the like mm. sort of maybe not. Yeah, more like family drama, I would say. Uh huh. Colin Farrell seems to like that. I know, and he's been everywhere this year. Yeah. There is this really fun and unique documentary called "My Old School" with Alan Cumming, which is oh, yeah. dramatizing a 
this I won't give away what happens because the documentary sort of takes its time unfolding the story, mm-hmm. but it is it is zooming back into a Scottish high school from the 90s where something unexpected happened during the school year. And so they interview all the people that that uh, were in school the year it happened. And the central figure who we know going in as part of this story, uh, he didn't want to be on camera but he agreed to have his audio voice recorded so what they did was he recorded his story via audio alan cumming lip syncs his audio performance in the talking head segments and this is because at one point in the 90s alan cumming was supposed to play he was supposed to dramatize the story in just like a fictional movie mm-hmm. that fell apart so this is his sort of like return to the subject matter wow. and then half of the documentary is also these really charming like daria style simple animated sequences that are sort uh-huh. of showing you the the you know the class setting dramatizing what's happened and alan cumming voices the animated version of this person so you'll either see alan coming but not hear his voice or not see him but hear his voice and it's like it's a wild and fun story like it's worth seeing just for the craziness of the story but mostly it just has this energy of going back to your high school and interviewing all your old friends about whatever the crazy scandal was the year you were there which i feel like probably most people (laughs) that went to school can relate to some you know wild thing that happened even if it wasn't this level of wild and all the little interactions of all the talking head people, like, recalling, oh, yeah, that teacher, I had a crush on them. And then they'll cut to someone else, you know, it's like, oh, that was the worst teacher ever. It's just, like, really fun and charming and, and pretty lighthearted. So my old school loved that but- one. I've got two more to mm-hmm. do quickly. The Bad Guys uh-huh. is an animated film. Uh, which DreamWorks. Yes. Is it DreamWorks? I just know this because our previous podcast guest, Dr. Sam Summers, posted his updated ranking of DreamWorks Animations oh, films. Where did he put it? To showcase, he put it quite high, something like four or five. He was showcasing that the new Puss in Boots film, which maybe we need to view and do a special <laughs> on, uh, was like his number two right behind Shrek 2, uh, which was wonderful news uh, to me. Um but yeah, I think it might be a DreamWorks animation. But in any case, the bad yeah, guys. Yeah, I, I would put it up high too. It's a sort of like Ocean's Eleven style, like heist gang. Uh, but they're all animals, they're anthropomorphic animals, including a, I think he's a wolf. Maybe he's a fox. No, I think he's a wolf. Voiced he's a big by, bad wolf. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Voiced yeah. by Sam Rockwell. The great and Sam And it's like a really fun, it's a fun movie, fun story, like lots of sort of like tarantino-esque segments but filtered through a kid's movie lens Mm -hmm. but mostly it's just that the animation style is so cool they do it's like 2d element it's like 3 3d animation with 2d elements Mm -hmm. so the creatures are 3d like you might see in like a pixar movie but their eyes will be 2d like you'd see in a looney tunes cartoon Mm -hmm. and it just gives it this really fun original look and i always like when animation is kind of pushed to a new level like that that sounds neat yeah really liked the bad guys and finally because i guess i'm really into jenny slate this year there's this amazon prime video rom-com called i want you back with jenny slate and charlie day Mm -hmm. that i just kind of watched being like eh, whatever a rom-com i'll check it out and i just loved it so much i think it's so underrated like i think that this is of the people are sleeping on it prompt like this is very easily available super super charming like nora efron-esque rom-com 
Uh, lovely performances. I just loved it. A really great and unexpected musical moment that is like one of my highlights of the year. So I want you back. Check it out. Awesome. About I got three that I pulled. Uh, the first again. I don't know how much people are sleeping on these. Maybe it's sort of dubious. But um, the first I pulled was Turning Red. Yeah. Uh, the Pixar film from this year, which I assume went straight to yeah Disney Plus, which is like a sort of an echo proof chamber where it's like impossible to tell if anybody is watching it or not. Um, again, not not so much because I thought the story was like perfect. I feel like it's like. The plot like threads a little bit weird in the like second and third act, but like the animation on this movie is so next level. And just like literally the character animations on here are so freaking funny to me. Like, I actually loved getting Instagram ads for this movie because a lot of times it mean I would get to watch the same like seven second clip like over and over. Mm-hmm. And you just notice these things. Again, it is kind of like Starting to understand how like Looney Tunes and like other like big pioneers in 2D animation, like with very simple tools, they created like really expressive facial animations. And that was kind of like not there, I think, as much in early Pixar. Like, you know, Toy Story, I mean, you know, Toy Story, they're they're very expressive, but I think it is limited compared to the like mm-hmm. incredible like elasticity uh and like detail of what they're doing now. And all the characters are extremely good. Her, like, performance and, like, reactions to things are so good. It's this, like, great mining of, like, the humor of middle school girls. Like, mm-hmm. there, there are so many different ways in which, like, that little, like, demographic can be funny. And there's numerous characters in there that are in that demographic. And they're all funny in so many different ways. Like, her little girl gang is just, like... Super charming. Yeah, so charming. And, uh... Yeah, uh, and the like the red panda like monster, the like Hulk red panda that she becomes is like hysterical to behold all the time. Yeah, it's not a it's not a like it's not a five star movie for me, but like I thought it was really good and really fun and kind of like you know just shining a light in some areas where the light is like not always shined and looking at some stuff that we do not always get to look at. And I really like that. Um, so this is not as if like nobody had heard of this movie, but I feel like actually a lot of our peers might not have actually gotten around to watching it and you should um the second one was a documentary called paris is burning Mm uh which i watched uh last month on september 28th uh on an airplane on my laptop it's incredible this is a 1990 documentary and it just drove home this like phenomenon that i'm always thinking about which is that like a lot of culture like starts in essentially, like, the most marginalized places, like, in this case, like, queer communities of color, and then it, like, drifts its way out to, like, you know, sort of more heteronormative communities of color, and then, like, eventually it makes its way through there to, like, white teenagers, and then, like, drifts up to millennials and Gen Xers and boomers, and then the culture is itself, like, dead. Um, sorry, I hope, I don't mean to be reductive with that, like, but, but I mean, like, a lot of the things that you will see our peers like like tweeting and saying on TikTok, like they were invented in like the ballrooms of the queer community in the 80s. And this is a documentary about that. And it is amazing. And mm-hmm. it is extremely funny, extremely cool, extremely heartbreaking. Um like, I will just warn, like, this this movie has parts that are, like, a gut punch. But it is not, like, 
you know, a, a miserable slog from start to finish. Like there's so much like amazing, hysterical, resilient joy in it. Um, Paris is Burning is super duper cool. Mm-hmm. I just you looked s- it up. It's streaming on HBO Max and I would totally Great. co-sign your recommendation. Great. Um, and my last uh, sleeping on movie is me sort of like, um, I'm stirring the pot a little bit here because it is Barbarian, um, which I labeled as a four-star movie when I saw it on the 13th of October. It's kind of like gone up to like a four and a half in my head. I I mean, I don't want to make a fight about this, but I know that because of We're on Letterboxd that you had Barbarian as a two and a half star movie. For comparison, what would be a two and a half star movie for me? Something like Halloween Ends, maybe? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that Barbarian is, I don't want to get into the plot of it, but I thought it is sort of extremely simple in scope and premise, and yet somehow still manages to feel like twisty as hell. Like it just like, like so wrong footed me in a way that I really enjoyed on multiple occasions. And I thought like, extremely thematically rich for how sort of simple the story is. Like I just kept talking about it and thinking about it and being like, Oh my God, that, that also, there also is a parallel because this element here is kind of like, that's the same dynamic that we're seeing in this other crazy thing. Uh, Oh, and the fact that, that he, this, like it brings this thing around. And uh, I just like, I just thought there was a lot to like sink your teeth into and think about in this movie that I also found like extremely scary and extremely entertaining and, uh, you know, just had like a blast with uh, and then like had more of a blast like talking about it with my friends like afterwards. We just like stood in the hall outside the Regal movie theater and we're like, man, oh, oh, oh. And what about what about this thing? Did you know anything about it going in? No. Um, a friend of mine had said, like, go see this movie. Don't look up anything about it. And I, when people say that to me, I, I love that. That's how I was, too. Although I think that maybe also set up, like, I heard, go in, don't know anything. It's, like, crazy. Mm-hmm. Which even that, even if you don't know things about it, I do think sets up certain expectations. Yeah. I think we're probably aligned on the fact that some of it was scary and the like the surprising sort of structure was really fun. I found it quite thematically like hollow. Mm. <laughs> so maybe we're having the opposite experience there. But I kind of felt like when all was said and done, I didn't find a lot to dig into. And it seemed like a movie that thought it was a little smarter than it actually was. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> It depends on your perspective. For me, it just it just had me thinking. It just keeps coming up for me in conversation. Like people mm-hmm. are like, people are. I mean, I think one of the things that is publicly said is like one of the inspirations for the writer was a book he read about like how women should trust their instinctual red flags when they get like a bad feeling about a situation. Mm-hmm. That just came up in conversation with someone recently and I was like, oh, you should see Barbarian. I just feel like I keep having moments where I'm like, oh, you should see Barbarian. I just feel like there's a lot to talk about there. But we're not just going to talk about it here because I want to keep it kind of spoiler-free. That is streaming on... Also HBO Max. On HBO Max. So why don't you so, get yeah. on there and log it on your Letterboxd and let us know where you stand. I was going to say, watch, watch Paris is Burning and then Barbarian. What a double feature that would be. 
Yeah. Uh, it'd be a strange one. Um, but yeah, those were my, those are my, uh, movies people are sleeping on. The next thing I have is, um, one of my favorite topics. I, I picked this before I had one for this year. Um, I don't know if I nailed on the example, but just something I love to collect in films is a great performance in a bad movie. Um, uh, cocktailing it, if you will. No, cocktailing it is when you kind of make the movie into a better movie by giving mm-hmm. it a great performance. I think I'm interested in things like Paul Rudd in Mute, um, Laura Linney in like like half the movies she's ever been in because I feel like she's half in like <laughs> great movies and half she's in like terrible movies where she gives an amazing performance. Um, movies like Breach or The Nanny Diaries. Mine for this year from February 8th was... The Tragedy of Macbeth, which was maybe another candidate for, like, a meh movie, but I just thought, like, the personal disappointment was so great. I, again, the tools they are working with here, um, maybe not my favorite. Denzel Washington. Exactly. So Ethan Cohen? Joel Cohen? It was Ethan Cohen, right? It's got one of the Cohen brothers. You've got Denzel Washington, a tremendous actor. You've got Francis McDormand, a tremendous actor. You've got this play that, like, is one of my all-time favorite Shakespeare plays. Definitely was my favorite for a while. Like, if Shakespearean snobs would criticize it for being, like, a little bit more, like, simple and straightforward, like, it's dynamic, it's short, it's energetic, it's extremely action-packed. All these things that should make it a great movie. I thought it was terribly adapted and I thought that Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand like were okay at best, not really directed in any kind of way, uh, not really led to shed any clarity to the language. Which like if people find Shakespeare hard to understand, like that is such a legit criticism. That's why it's the responsibility of really good actors to really, really know what the fuck they're saying. Like I think there's like. There's a stage of, like, Shakespeare is gobbledygook to me, and then there's a stage of, like, I get it. This is a scene where he's psyching himself up to do a murder. Mm -hmm. But, like, that isn't knowing exactly what the fuck you're saying. That isn't understanding, like, what the specific phrases mean and what they connect to and what the sort of, like, traditions are. There is another level of, like, genuinely understanding like inside and out what the language means and you will know it when you'll see it because you will understand what they are saying um this was not that although Catherine Hunter dying yes okay 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 yes I was like what is the performance gonna be the performance is Catherine Hunter as the witch slash Mm -hmm. the witches so there are three weird sisters who kind of like foretell this uh, you know, prophecy. They are, in this case, all of them told by, they're all performed by this one actor, Catherine Hunter, who it's like not really sure if it's like three people or like three reflections of one person. She was like just like riveting to behold. I'd never seen her in anything else. I've now seen her. She's in Andor right now on Disney mm-hmm. Plus. Um, but she's kind of giving this like bizarre, twitchy, raspy, contortionist performance that I just so cool. loved to behold. Yeah, she was awesome, I thought, in that. Um, I also should say that I thought uh, the movie was, like, shot amazingly. Like, I would mm-hmm. honestly watch it as a silent film, put some, like, music over it. You know, I might do that someday. It was, like, gorgeous to look at. Um, but I thought the central performances were not there, and the uh, adaptation choices were, like, really bad. Uh, they create a character 
who kind of like is making the whole plot happen, which is a decision I do not understand at all. When there's already, there's a central drama of like, is he doing this thing because supernatural forces are controlling him? Or has he just been suggested and it's his own, like his and his wife's like personal ambitions that are controlling him. And whatever Cohen it was has said, like, what if there was a third character we created by cobbling like four other characters together to make a manipulative guy who's like running the whole show. And I have no idea what the utility of that is. Anyway, Catherine Hunter's great, great performance, very disappointing movie. That's mine. What do you got? Okay, I do just need to officially say it was Joel Cohen so that we won't be canceled for mixing up Red Cohen Brothers. I liked the movie more than you, but I agree. Catherine Hunter was a huge standout. Yeah. I sort of went in maybe the opposite direction for this. Okay. There was a Michael Bay movie that came out this year called Ambulance. Yes. That is just an absolutely fucking bananas movie. Similarly feels like um, what you were describing Dark Water as like aliens making a erotic <laughs> thriller. This was a little bit like aliens making a heist car chase movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one really acts like a human being. But for, for better... Uh, star Jake Gyllenhaal does not act like a human being in a way I found <laughs> very compelling. One of very me- cool. <laughs> one of uh, one of Jake's many just like going for it performances, which I feel like has been a sort of more recent through line of his career. Uh, just very over the top, campy, uh, ridiculous. I would say knowingly so. <laughs> mm-hmm. What's his character? Uh, he is the criminal brother of Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who is our our moral hero, who's agreeing to do a heist because he needs money to pay for, I forget if it's his kid's medical treatment or his wife's medical treatment or something. And Jake is the over-the-top sort of crime lord brother who pulls him into this heist that goes wrong, and they end up in a getaway car. They are driving an ambulance. In the back of an ambulance is a police officer they have shot that they are trying to have him not die on their watch and mm-hmm. they have kind of inadvertently kidnapped an uh a uh, what are they called a paramedic <laughs> well yes yeah. <laughs> they've inadvertently kidnapped a paramedic who now they're kind of forcing to whatever do like literally she at one point she's the ambulance is driving like you know whatever 60 miles through la and these crazy chase sequences and she's like <laughs> literally cutting open him and like doing surgery in the back and like sticking her hand into the guy and Mm -hmm. just very ridiculous over the top Michael Bay stuff. And Jake Gyllenhaal is just a character who's like at a 12 the whole time (laughs) and just like yelling about, you know, clothes or like, Oh, you painted this wrong. Just a very over the top manic Jake Gyllenhaal performance in a very over the top manic movie that i think is bad maybe more in a fun way like i think you could easily throw this movie on with your friends and like get drunk or get high and have a good time watching it or uh-huh. be sober and do it which is also <laughs> how i consumed it in the movie theater at a and like was 1 p.m press screening and, and had a lot of fun that way too great so for this next one we're gonna not talk about movie for a second uh i just want to take a chance to shout out a great letterboxed user would you like to go first sure I'm going to shout out, he probably doesn't need my shouting out because he's he's quite uh, successful in his own right, but Demi Adijawibe, who I first knew as the co-host of the Gilmore Guys podcast, in which oh. two guys uh, watched slash rewatched uh, for Demi, a first-time watch for his his uh, co-host, Kevin T. Porter, a, a longtime fan, a rewatch of the entire Gilmore Girls series. 
You might also know Demi from his series of funny <laughs> internet videos on uh, uh, September. What is it? The 21st night the of 21st, September. Yeah. The Earth, Wind and Fire uh, song. I about- also know him yeah. from, uh, do you know that he did that version of the Succession theme song? Oh, where yeah. Where the rich folks are going to argue. And then whoever's best is going to get a kiss from daddy. Yes, of course. A very much a sort of like absurdist internet presence slash LA TV writer. And that I, I love all of those aspects of his career. But I particularly like the way he uses Letterboxd, which I think is a really good blend of sort of like thoughtful, critical perspective, but very much not from the point of view of a professional film critic. Like giving a little more of like, this is just how a normal human being responds to something, which I find helpful to try to surround myself with that so that I don't get so immersed in the bubble of just like, you know, film critic-y people. And and we're all sort of just speaking to ourselves in these strange languages that maybe become inaccessible. Like I really like to check in with sort of people who are giving more just like straightforward, almost just like emotional responses and I think he does a really good job of doing that, and often in a very funny way, as uh, as he is wont to do. So Demi Adijuwebe, highly recommend. I went in actually a very, very similar direction. I'm I'm shouting out someone who is like, you know, has a solid following, is a comedy person, uh, writes thoughtful things, but not really as a film criticism professional, which is Branson Reese, um, who I know is an internet comic. He actually is, we have met before he's married to a friend of ours um but uh but he does extremely funny web comics he hosts a pretty funny actual play D podcast that i would listen to more except i just can't don't have the time for actual play D podcast but he's a very fun letterboxed follow similarly i honestly feel like i sort of unconsciously he was someone I followed like very early on in this, and I feel like I unconsciously kind of like modeled my style after him, where sometimes sure. it's just quips and sometimes it's longer write-ups. But he just makes me laugh. Um, his sense of humor is very offbeat, uh, unapologetic, sharply critical at times, um, but like also like kind. Uh, yeah, I think it's very funny. Um, and since we shouted up to sort of like more famous-ish people, I feel like these people have like thousands and thousands of followers. I want to also, also shout out Former podcast guests Manish and uh, Will, yeah. both of whom Manish are... Mother, Will Costa, follow them on yeah. on Letterbox. I feel like I have shouted them out on Letterbox before, which is why I didn't go that way this time. But they're both uh, really fun on Letterbox, so look them up as well. Oh, Brian Muldoon, Brian Muldoon. Also oh yeah, Letterbox former guest. Great. I was looking through. I was like, who else? I feel like we've had other people on. Are there other? Yeah, is there Joe Cunningham. Else we're Great. Has a Letterboxed. And I think that's all I'm seeing so far, but there could be more to come. Stand by. So the next prompt uh, was a review you're proud of. And I I didn't know which direction you took this in. I hardly knew what direction to take this in myself. Um, But I just picked a review from, you know, the middle of this year that I thought typified my, uh, my letterboxed style, which I will read for you now. That is from August 10th. When I was dog sitting and I had a very big TV at my disposal in somebody else's very fancy house and I watched Troy. Oh. Why did I watch this movie? No one was asking me to. So much relevant content I'm supposed to be consuming these days, but my heart commanded me to watch Troy. Maybe I wanted to give it another shot considering the last time I watched it I was in eighth grade and my crush was making out with my friend in the movie theater chairs right next to me. 
What a peculiar relic it is. Homer's Iliad, the cool version. I'd say the movie has shades of the Northmen and its total embrace of a value system focused on martial glory, though this one obeys all early aughts rule of cool blockbuster conventions and the Northmen was made by total freak Robert Eggers. The politics of this movie are a little dubious. War is bad, but also rad. And then I used a sunglasses emoji. And the emotional logic of some parts is a bit incoherent, but TBH I found myself totally sucked in, largely because at the center is a performance from Brad Pitt that is way more magnetic than it has any right to be. I honestly think Brad is one of our most watchable actors. He's so instinctual, it's like watching a big cat. His Achilles is functionally our protagonist, but Brad makes all the choices to make him basically the least likable person ever, a near sociopath obsessed with glory who kills the only nice guy in the movie and then mutilates his corpse. A gloomy, melancholic, nihilistic performance of deep emotion trapped behind the eyes of an unbelievably chiseled, golden-haired killer with incredible thighs, leaping around and swinging his little gladius everywhere. Brian Cox is an awesomely evil, opera-scale dickbag. Eric Bana is rugged and adorable. The three women characters are all ludicrous as written. Trojan Horse looks great. Most of all, I think the fight scenes are just pulse-pounding. I can't decide if I think it's ethical, generally speaking, to make war look cool, but it sure looks and feels cool here. Holy shit. Fight team deserves a real round of beers, or a cask of wine in the halls of Ares, or whatever would be appropriate. Four stars. What a fun review! Thank you. I feel like Troy is weirdly a movie that comes up between you and I, like, frequently. Well, certainly since August it has been. I I, I wonder if that is has been true, or if just since August... As you could tell, I was just kind of like, what? I just ex- I just thought I was like, oh, I'll pop on this dumb old thing. And I, I like, against my will, like found it much more compelling than I expected I would. Yeah. I think I've heard other people say that they, like fight coordinators say that they think the fights in the movie are really well done they for that are type of movie. amazing. Yeah. Yeah, they're really good. I think Roxana Haddadi, former podcast guest, is a mm-hmm. fan of Troy. She's a Troy appreciator. Who's so. the first- r-rated movie that i ever just went and saw on my own i guess when i turn what do you turn what what age do you have to be to see an r-rated movie well 17 so something must have been funky there or maybe it came i out just when we were... snuck in yeah you might have done i can't remember but i remember my cousin emily and i went to go see troy cool <laughs> so uh what's your what's a review crucial. you're proud of well you know i went in the opposite direction of you Please. you had a beautiful eloquent thoughtful uh, measured response. Maybe it's good I went first. <laughs> and I strive to embody those qualities in like my reviews, my actual reviews that I'm writing. And so sometimes I enjoy using Letterboxd for slightly goofier things. I had forgotten I did this and it did make me laugh when I stumbled upon it. I, I uh, For a podcast called Travolta Cage that I was on this year, I watched the movie Old Dogs, which is a Robin Williams, John Travolta, <laughs> atrocious studio comedy from 2009. And I gave it a half star. And for my <laughs> review of Old Dogs, I wrote, woof. <laughs> <laughs> and when I saw that, it really made me laugh again. <laughs> well played, Caroline. Thank you, Ned. Well played. That's <laughs> so funny. At the beginning of this, uh, before we recorded, I was like, I think for a review you're proud of, we might read the whole thing. I was like, are you are you comfortable reading your whole review? And you were like, yeah, I'd be comfortable <laughs> with that. You, you know, sometimes less is more. And I would say with a movie that bad, 
<laughs> Sometimes one word can say it all. Yeah. Indeed. So the last prompt I had is just um, to sort of miscellaneous other memories, the category I'm calling the, oh, yeah, I remember watching that. With this, I'm sort of focusing on, uh, like, memorable movie watching experiences in addition to just, like, you know, movies. Because I like the diary portion when I say, oh, yeah, it was March. I did this mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah. Do you want to you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. I went to the... South by Southwest Film Festival this year, which was quite a big and and fun thing to do. I had never been before. And I shouted out, I think, on our Halloween Ends episode that I saw the Everything Everywhere All at Once premiere where Jamie Lee Curtis was in attendance, which was really Mm -hmm. fun. But honestly, the more memorable part of that, even than like the Daniels being there and Michelle Yeoh being there and like how exciting and cool that was, James Hong, who I believe is like 90 something years Mm -hmm. old. The unbelievable uh, James plays Hong. the grandpa in that movie. He wasn't there in person, but he had sent in a little pre-recorded segment mm-hmm. that was genuinely one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> oh, cool. and like inspired me so much with this idea that it was this whole premise as if he was kind of zooming in, but he was like getting confused about how the zoom worked, and like just the timing of it all was impeccable. And I was like, at ninety something, the way this man is like truly the funniest and sharpest person i've ever seen in this video segment and like stole the show i loved that so much oh that warms my heart it was so i thought i actually thought of you when it happened because i know you're a big fan yeah so he crushed it the other south by southwest experience that i don't think anything will ever be more surreal and i can't remember if i've talked about it on the show on the podcast before but i saw the unbearable weight of massive talent which is this super meta movie in which Nicolas Cage plays himself. Mm-hmm. And the plot is that this uh, sort of eccentric billionaire has recruited Nick Cage to come and, and hang out with him because that's something rich people can do. And then it becomes sort of like an action spoof with the CIA being involved. Uh, but the entire movie is just like referencing every single movie from Nick's career. And he's quoting his most infamous, you know, lines. And he's like, oh, I've got to use my national treasure skills to help the CIA do this thing. I saw this movie, you know, at South by Southwest, a lot of the stars from the movies are there. So Nicolas Cage was at this movie. It was like a 10 p.m. screening. I think didn't end up starting till like 1030 or 11. He's wearing an amazing plaid suit. And I was sitting such that, you know, it's like a big auditorium, big theater. There's sort of three chunks of seats. Mm-hmm. So the left chunk, central chunk, right chunk. I was in the right chunk of seats and he was in the central chunk, but we were technically in the same row. So I could look over and watch him watch the movie <laughs> Man. in a room where, you know, like people were wearing like full, full suits that were just like Nick Cage's face, like the most <laughs> hyped, surreal, uh, enthusiastic audience that got every single Nick Cage reference. Um, being in that space with Nick Cage himself, <laughs> being able to look over. I mean, it was a situation where I was supposed to be there to review the movie. And at some point oh, I was yeah. like, there is no, I have to just write about what this experience was because I could not review this as a film. This was just such an, a bananas experience. I can't Seemed imagine like just like turning my time. head. And then like, right. there's Nick freaking Cage. And I felt kind of bad. I was like, you know, I want this man to just be able to live his life and not feel watched. But like, how could I not? Because like, you, weren't, 
just watching Nick Cage watch a Nick Cage movie. Exactly. You're watching people in an audience when Nick Cage in a movie says, you know, whatever about the bees from the Wicker Man. And everyone in the room explodes in laughter. And I'm like, how is Nick Cage processing this? How is Nick Cage watching people watch Nick Cage play Nick Cage in this Nick Cage film? Or how is Nick Cage experiencing watching people watch Nick Cage watch Nick Cage play Nick Cage in this Nick Cage film? Exactly. The absolute like inception of film going experiences. They did a Q&A after and he would just sort of like, <laughs> not regularly, but there were a couple moments where he would just almost refer to himself in the third person and be like, it's Nick Cage. You gotta say, you gotta say not the bees in a Nick Cage movie. Yeah. Uh, wow. Just so I can't imagine anything will ever top that as a surreal movie going experience. And I am glad that I was there for it. <laughs> cool. One of the ones I pulled was Nightmare Alley, which was kind of a, I think, forgotten Guillermo del Toro film. B. Coop and uh, Kate Blanche and... Uh, Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. Rune Mara. Rune Mara and uh, T. Colette, you know, David Strathairn. You know, Will and Defoe. Uh, you know, a little Richard Jenkins, a little Holt. Uh, do you know the guy from Mindhunters? Is it Holt McElhaney or oh, Holt yeah. McCallany? Or- McClane. Small part in this, but I was watching Mindhunter at the time, and I was just thirsty for anything yeah. else he would do. Which BTW? He's going to be—he's the patriarch in that Zac Efron wrestling movie. So we will get oh, more. Oh, nice. Anyway, sidebar. Um, Nightmare Alley, I thought was like fun. What was really cool for me is that they did this special release. They called Nightmare Alley: Vision in Light and Darkness, or like Journey in Light and Shadow, or something like that. Um, Vision in Darkness and Light. Where they just screened, they re-released the movie because they released the movie against Spider-Man, No Way Home or Far From Home or whatever the freaking one was with the, you know, with everybody coming back, um, which is a baffling decision from one company to do. It got, of course, like trounced. Nobody knew this movie had even come out, but they re-released it in black and white, which I thought was a really cool. It just like drove the sort of noiriness of it home mm-hmm. and... We've done this before, Emily and I have seen when they, you know, started screening Mad Max Fury Road in black and white. We went to go see that at midnight some night. And, you know, not to be all artsy-fartsy about it, but it really, like, changes the way your eye kind of, like, looks around at everything. You just, like, see the composition of things differently. And I also really enjoy a sort of special occasion movie screening where it's like, okay, one week only, you can see this movie in black and white. After that, your chance for that is kind of gone. So that was a fun little memory. On July 21st, I went to Chicago's Rooftop Cinema Club, which is a very sort of like, it's a very bougie thing in the bougie neighborhood of Fulton Market, which I love to make fun of. But honestly, like it was a perfect, perfect summer night. We were up on this roof and they screened Thelma and Louise, which we've already mentioned today. Aforementioned favorite. Prior to that, I was thinking that Thelma and Louise was hovering around like my 15th, 16th favorite movie, kind of like that zone. And then watching that, I like, it shot up into the top five. Um, It just, every time it is such a hoot. It touches me so much. I think it's so groundbreaking, uh, particularly for the era it's in. It to me is essentially like the perfect crime film, Mm -hmm. you know, like basically like that and Godfather. I can't. I can't think of anything more interesting in the way that, like, that looks at crime. And this is just, like, this sort of, like, fascinating, like, neo-Western descent. It's just, it's a perfect road movie. Mm -hmm. It's, like, a great, like, 90s capsule. The performances are unbelievable. 
Uh, Gina Davis as Thelma Dickinson is like one of my favorite performances of all time. That Another Brad Pitt uh, uh-huh. vehicle. Another great young Brad Pitt. I mean, everybody, like what's Christopher McDonald as the kind of like oafish husband is like, I just lose my shit. Speaking of movie memories, yeah, I watched that movie for the first time with you. Yeah. Probably like six or seven years ago at this point. You mm-hmm. just, and I think a very Ned move. You were just like, I'm going to come over. We're going to watch this really good movie and I know you're going to like it. And you were absolutely correct. We watched it right? together and it was great. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. That was a five-star film for sure. And yeah, with that, like that, that takes us through our like year in Letterboxd. If you want to see everything else we saw and everything we thought about it, like please jump on there again like you know or don't like we we're not paid by the app we don't care but uh, yet we're not paid by the app yet we're not paid by the app yet that's right caroline thank you thank you that's the positive thinking we need for people who aren't familiar too it's spelled like letterbox normally but there's no e at the end b-o-x-d if you're searching for this in your app uh, platform to download as well in classic app naming Mm -hmm. you know Grinder. Drop a drop a vowel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so letterboxd. Yeah, there's one point when I wrote about in my little like starting monologue here, I wrote, I love letterbox's diary function. And that was kind of weird <laughs> to think about. But yeah. Um so yeah, that's been that's been uh that's been fun. And this has been a fun little little diversion for a for a Thursday. We hope that you have enjoyed this and we'll have a lovely November. We will be pursuing our own things in our lives, <laughs> and uh, and we will be back soon. Mm-hmm. December, Lord of the Rings trilogy coming your way. Yeah. So uh, until then, keep it secret. Keep it safe. <laughs> Fly, you fools. Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Sita. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wansersky. You can follow us on Twitter for the moment, if it continues to exist, or on Instagram <laughs> at Roll Calling. Uh, you can follow us individually on Letterboxd at Ned, 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 and at Caroline Sita. Is that correct? Yeah. Or you can email us at rollcalling at gmail.com. With all these, that's Roll, R-O-L-E. We'll be back next month with Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Until then... What is the, I don't know why this was my impulse. What's the little song that Gollum sings? That who sings? Da, 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 the juicy sweet. <laughs> I don't know why That's that it. was my impulse of all Lord of the Rings things to Catch pull. It was Gollum's fish song that came to me. Hey, that works for me. <laughs>